Why is disappointment such an essential part of being a leader? This is one of the questions I talk about with Carlos Caro, the VP of Partnerships at Caribou. Carlos is also a former founder and a poker player who writes about his experiences at the poker table and how they can relate to business. In this episode, he shares a story about a time when he was understaffed and overworked. He'll talk about the wrong turns he made and how he eventually uncovered principles to help him work more purposefully and logically. Let's take it away. Welcome to the Leadership for Unicorns podcast. I'm your host, Rob D. Willis, and I work with tech companies all over the world to teach them communication skills and public speaking. Join me as I talk to tech leaders who have seen it all. You'll hear their stories and learn from their experience. So buckle up and let's uncover those gems they won't teach you in an MBA. Carlos, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here, man. Uh, it's great to meet you, Rob. All these times on LinkedIn, finally get to see you in person. So it's, it's good to connect. You are the VP of Partnerships at Caribou. And I thought it would be a really great place to start with our conversation today is just if you could introduce yourself, tell us a bit about the work that you're doing at Caribou and a bit about your team, just to give us that, that context. Sure, absolutely. So I've been at Caribou for about a year now. And my responsibility is to bring new customers to the platform. So we're a marketplace that connects people that are looking to refinance their loan to a lender. So the, the general problem, and this might be a problem only in the States, is people tend to overpay for their auto loans for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. And our lenders fix that problem. We make it really quick and simple for folks to, to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as my team, I, I work with a group of product managers, engineers, partnership managers, um, mm-hmm. legal associates. It's a really broad cross-functional team. I don't manage all yeah. those folks directly, but I'm responsible for the outcome of customer acquisition. Uh, okay. So I have to negotiate internally and externally. That's how I describe it. That's, that's, yeah. that's a bit of a feel for my job. And um, I was looking over your experience. You went into the corporate world in 2006. So that's 17 years now, yeah? That's right. Yeah, it's, I, it's difficult to say it, but it's, it's true. <laughs> exactly. Wisdom, you know, that's what it's all about, man. And I was looking at the range of companies you've worked at as well. I mean, you've worked at giants like Capital One, you've been a founder yourself as well. And I was thinking about the role of a leader. And I was wondering, how do you see the role of a leader as being different in a a younger company like Caribou versus Mm. in a huge company like Capital One or in your own startup, for instance? How do you you see the differences being? Oh, yeah. So... The way I think about it at, at Capital One, I just think about my time there, the leadership was much more conceptual. It was about principles. It was about ideas. It was about setting vision. It was about inspiring. So it was more about getting the, kind of drawing the best out of people and mm-hmm. motivating them, getting to see what the finish line looks like um, and kind of aspiring a larger group to move together and mobilize towards that mm-hmm. big outcome. In a smaller setting, Leadership's more about leading by example, I think. So it's, it's rolling up your sleeves, getting the work done yourself. Um, not necessarily because you want to, but because you have to. Because there's, there's yeah. just simply not enough resources in a smaller organization for, mm-hmm. uh, for a leader to delegate all the things that they would normally do in a big organization. Yeah. So that, that was one of the bigger transitions for me is how do I learn what I personally take on versus what I, what I delegate? So. Uh, that, yeah. and, that, and, I'm, and I'm still learning on, in that mention. Yeah, I, I think people 
act like they've got that worked out, but I don't. I think everyone's sort of feeling their way through that uh, consistently. And how did you find that transition? So you go from a massive company, and then suddenly you're in a, a much smaller one, which is more agile and more nimble. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you find that transition? Like suddenly having, in a way, more freedom, but in a way having to do more other stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was so. It was actually something I was seeking. So okay. when when I left Capital One. What was circling around in my head was, wow, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time waiting for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm putting together documents. I'm waiting for them to review them. I'm waiting for senior leadership to give me feedback. Yeah. And I just, I kind of stepped back and I was like, wow, this, this idea that I had four months ago, we're still talking about the idea. We haven't executed anything yet. Yeah. We're refining it. We're making it better. And the <laughs> process at Capital One was super rigorous. So by the <laughs> time things went to market, it was really tight. We had thought through all the angles. We had written yeah. out the 20 things that go wrong, that could go wrong, and what we would do about each of them. Mm-hmm. So we were meticulous, but things took a long time. And there was a part of me that just got really anxious with that. It might be my impatience. It might be my ADD. I don't know exactly what to attribute it to, but I knew I wanted to operate in an environment where things could just get to market faster. Yeah. What, what I enjoyed at Cap One was figuring out a piece of intent, designing it, putting it in front of customers and then seeing how they reacted. And there was mm-hmm. always surprises. People never respond the way you think they do to, yeah. to a marketing ad or a, you know, a credit program. So I, I love the iterations and I figured in a small company environment, I would get more of those iterations. That's exactly no, what just... happened. That's exactly mm-hmm. what happened in the small company environment. The, um, the, the, the biggest adjustment was the lack of structure for me. There wasn't yeah. anybody telling me what to do. There wasn't any, anyone telling me how to think about problems. <laughs> they said, Carlos, go figure this thing out. And it was just like absolutely like in the fog after that. So <laughs> trusting my own instincts, defining structure for myself, that was one of the big transitions. Yeah, I can imagine. I, I like the idea of that very entrepreneurial way of working. It's obvious. I've always been freelance. It's something I've always had to do is just figure it out like that. But I'm wondering when you look back, just one or two things, do you think that maybe these younger, more entrepreneurial type organizations, do you think what could they take from a place like Capital One, do you think? Oh, there's so many things. There's so yeah. many things. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm still like connect, connecting the dots for myself, even at you know 17 years into my career. But Capital One does consensus really mm-hmm. well. So they value everybody's opinion. They gather it mm-hmm. uh, rigorously. They write it down. They circulate frameworks to you know, different parts of the organization. So like I said earlier, by the time something goes to market, it's really tight and thought through, but it's not Mm -hmm. by accident. It's because they gather everybody's input in a structured way to do that. So I think that's one piece Mm -hmm. small companies can take, and it doesn't have to take four months. You can gather consensus quickly in a couple of days if you're thoughtful about it. So that's one piece. Um, Capital One hires extremely well. Mm -hmm. That's one piece I always took to my kind of startup career is, you know, how does, how do they assess talent? There's a structure behind it. What questions do you ask? Uh, how do you screen someone? How do you give cases? How do you, how do you actually assess somebody, how somebody thinks? Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I think is difficult in an interview because you're usually yeah. talking about somebody's experience, tell me what you did. It's hard to get into somebody's head in that context. So Capital One does a really good job creating these like 30 to 45 minute cases where you actually expose a problem to someone and they talk you through it. And it, what, it doesn't, what, what's important isn't so much the answer, but their thought process. What did they consider? What did they not consider? How did they explain it to you? 
so I think Capital One hires extremely well, and I, I brought that to the kind of the smaller organizations I was in. And if, if I were to give you a third, um, most big companies do. I mean, there's just kind of a general level of discipline, right? At, at Capital One, people wouldn't wake up one morning saying, we're going to test this thing. We're just going to see what happens. Like there was always a vision and a strategy and like some big chunky goal. And yeah. tests and experiments were always connected to some grander vision. Mm-hmm. Whereas in startups, I've seen CEOs, and I'm guilty of this myself, CEOs mm-hmm. wake up and they say, oh, this sounds cool. Let's go do it. And they spin up a bunch of people to go do it. And then when you later unpack, well, what vision was that connected to? Why did we do it? Like mm-hmm. there's revisionist history on why we did it and why, why it didn't work. And, you know, it's not, it's not always as thoughtful. So I find kind of that strategic thinking to be a really a big strength of a company yeah. that's scale a cap one. And I think it reflects a sort of maturity as well. Uh, the analogy that Steve Jobs used was he always liked to think of Apple as being the pirates and other companies being the Navy. And then Reid Hoffman, I believe, took that a little step further and said, actually, part of growing is you develop out of being pirates to becoming a Navy. You're still trying to gather ground, but you're trying to do it in a way which, as you say, is more structured, more vision, not exactly. just like, throw it, like let, let's go, guys. Let's see what happens. A hundred percent. Yeah, I think that's right. And look, I mean, on, on the other side of it with startups, like I've seen really cool ideas come out of just taking action and having a bias for action, mm-hmm. which is, I think, something Capital One could learn from startups, which is like, look, thinking about things is good, but thinking about things for six months is bad, right? There is, there is some in between where you can be mm-hmm. thoughtful and you can move fast. Yeah. And I've actually found that at companies at kind of the 500 employee, the thousand employee stage, mm-hmm. which is, you know, when I joined Caribou, that's where it was at. And it's this really nice balance of talented teams already showing product market fit, a desire to hustle and grow quickly, um, but also thoughtfulness around the strategy. So that there's a really nice balance somewhere in between like the mega company yeah. and the 10 person startup. And I find they tend to be between 500 and 1,000 employees. Yeah, yeah. When they're growing, when they're beginning to get specialized in their jobs as well, um, exactly. for sure. And I'm wondering, like, like thinking back on your career as a leader in tech, uh, is there perhaps a moment where you think you were really tested? Yeah, yeah. The, the one, one immediately comes to mind. It's uh, just to set the stage for where I was at the time. So I was in San Francisco. I had just moved there, accepted a role at Credit Karma. Um, They had recently been valued at $4 billion. They were doing really well, 400 employees, growing quickly. I had met with the founders and got really excited about what they were building. And they hired me to run credit card partnerships. And to, to give you an idea like what that meant in the context of Credit Karma, their entire business was a, it's kind of a consumer app that people come to to check their credit score, to get tips and advice on how to build their credit. But the, the revenue center for the business was advertisements that send folks to or really recommendations. Ads is a probably a bad way to frame it. Recommendations that send people to credit card issuers, personal loan issuers, auto loan issuers. And all the partnerships on the other side were lenders. So someone had to manage the relationship between the consumer platform and the lenders who ultimately paid Karma for Mm -hmm. these recommendations. And ultimately, account acquisition was what they were paying for. Mm -hmm. So when I joined, it was a $400 million business, the one I was running. And I looked around and I was like, okay, cool. So like, where's the team? 
Like I want to meet the team and see who's managing all these partners. And you know, some part of me was expecting 10, 20 people, right? Mm -hmm. $400 million, like that's complex. That's big. That's a lot of work. Uh, I was shown three people. I was like, okay, three people. Okay, good. So where are the rest of the folks? Are they on vacation? When are they coming back? And the answer was like, oh no, that's, that's the team. Like go get this <laughs> thing done. So I was like, all right. You know, as the new guy, it wasn't going to be my place to say, no, this team mm -hmm. needs to be 20 on day one. So I jumped in, I started getting to work. And what I found uh, was my to-do list got longer every single day. There was never a day where it got shorter or even where it stayed flat. It was always mm -hmm. more work. And I was living that way for a little while. Mm -hmm. And the problem came when they said, hey, we, I want you to GM this business too. So not only do you need to run partnerships, you need to general manage everything. Data scientists, marketing, you need to be responsible for the whole thing. And I said, okay, great. I, I don't even think I has the partnerships thing down, let alone this whole thing, right? So that was mm -hmm. definitely a moment where I had to take a step back and, and think. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, that wasn't the moment that changed anything. That was just more fear and more anxiety. That was just yeah, more stuff sure. to do. Um, kind of a second false moment was where I said, okay, well, I just need to focus on recruiting. If I just had more people, this problem would go away and I'd be able to deal with everything. Mm -hmm. So what happened was I started scheduling these meetings, these interviews, and it was just, again, more stuff. I had all the other stuff. I had these interviews. The problem kept getting worse. Mm -hmm. I was up till midnight every day and the to-do list kept getting longer. Yeah. And then... The moment that changed it all for me was I was having a conversation with one of our partners and she really respect, I mean, I, I respect this woman considerably and she just said, look, I'm just really disappointed that you can't do this for me. Flat out, full stop. She stopped talking. She landed that message. And that was like such a gut punch for me. I was working so hard. I was spending all this time on this. I care deeply about the success of the business. And here, here was the partner saying, I am, I am deeply disappointed in you. So mm -hmm. look, I didn't have a lot to say to her. I, I don't even remember what my words were in response, but I hung up the phone and I started thinking, I was like, what? I was trying to process the emotions I was feeling at the time. And then it hit me. I was like, man, I was an A student in grade school. I went to Columbia. I graduated with honors. I've done well in my career. I've been promoted frequently. Here I am in this new role where it's a big job. And I'm being told I'm not doing it right. Like I'm actively being told um, someone's disappointed in me. And that was kind of the moment where I realized I'd spent my whole life not disappointing anyone. Mm -hmm. I'd been getting A's. I'd been doing what was expected. I'd been performing. Uh, but I was in a position now where I candidly couldn't please everybody. It was impossible. There was not the time or the resources or the manner to please everybody. And I had just suffered the punch. Like mm -hmm. I had just experienced what it felt. And look, it stung. It didn't feel good. But the next day I woke up, the world was still spinning. The sun still rose. Like everything was fine at the end of the day. This one person was disappointed. Mm -hmm. But look, she was disappointed for good reasons because her what she was asking for wasn't important enough for credit karma to deliver. It was reasonable and rational. So as soon as I recognized my success relied on disappointing others, 
Yeah. I, in, in fact, I had to disappoint others to be successful. Then that became a, like, like an explicit part of my framework. So I'd wake up and I'd say, okay, what are the most important things I need to do? I'd list them out, both short-term and long-term. <laughs> and I would actually just articulate, who am I going to disappoint today? There was always somebody that I, I need to tell, I can't do this, or I, I need to do it in three months, or I can't do it at all. <laughs> and I just got really comfortable with landing those no's <laughs> and explaining my rationale. And what I always learned was people were more understanding than I had anticipated. People would, like, when I would walk them through why I couldn't do something, they'd be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And they just walk out of the room, like, nothing happened. And I was expecting every conversation to be explosive, to contain drama, <laughs> to contain expletives towards me. And, like, that just wasn't true. So, like, this whole fear of disappointing was entirely in my head. Um, and once I got over that, you know, my, my career, my life changed. Like, I, <laughs> I started spending less time at work and having more impact. Because I candidly just deprioritized a lot of stuff, told a, pe- a lot of people no, didn't answer every email. And it was that, that was a big ca- game changer for me. Yeah, there's a wonderful book called The One Thing by, by Gary Keller, which is reminding, this is reminding me of mm-hmm. how really in order to make some sort of impact, we do need to, as you say, let people down. We do need to say no, because otherwise we just cannot make any kind of progress in any particular area. And I imagine it also gives you, thinking back to our earlier part of the conversation, you can now think strategically about where you're putting your time. Okay, say, what's the major outcome that I want to have in this particular moment, or what's best for the company in this particular moment? And as you say, that fear that we have that people are going to be really upset, um, if you're open and honest and say, look, I can't help you in this moment, usually they don't care as much about us as we we think they That's right, yeah. Yeah, no, and it's it's super freeing, and um, I don't know what the, what the right language is, but mm-hmm. it, you you come out of a conversation with almost like a weight lifted all off your shoulders. When that yeah. thing that was hanging around giving you anxiety, you don't just you don't just postpone or you kick the can down the road or you avoid. You just flat out say, "Look, it's not happening. Mm-hmm. It's not happening now. It's not happening ever." And you just rip the bandaid off the conversation. And most of the time, like you said, people are pretty understanding as long as they have a have an appreciation for the why. Right? Yeah. You can tell them what you're prioritizing and you know how things stack. And there may even be an element of relief for them because they may have an ever expanding 2D list as well. Like, oh God, thank God Carla said no to that. Now I can get on with the other things I have to yeah, do yeah. as well. Yeah, no, relief is the perfect word. That's actually the one I was searching for. That's the feeling after each yeah. one of those conversations. You because you can just definitively cross it off your to-do list, right? It's not—it's no longer a thing hanging around in, in the back of your head. For sure. So I think yeah. the, the the main message I'm getting out of this is that a key part of becoming a leader, when you're taking on more responsibility, is figuring out: I've got limited time. Where do I put my resources in order to make the most happen? Is that roughly yeah? I, I think it's, I think it's that plus recognizing that uh, disappointing people is part of the part of the game it's gonna happen and that if you please if you try to please everyone you're gonna please no one and you're also gonna disappoint yourself in that process yeah you're not gonna perform you're not gonna drive the results so an- another way to frame it is trying to please everyone's a definitive losing strategy mm-hmm. you're almost always gonna lose if you stand for something and you have a point of view yeah. and you disappoint people 
look, that's not a recipe for success. It's not going to guarantee you anything. It's mm-hmm. going to work. But it at least gives you a shot. Yeah. You, like, at least you're playing the game with a chance. If you're trying to please everyone, like, you literally have no chance. You might as well go home and not, not get on the field. For, for sure. No, it's, uh, and also, it's a very unfulfilling way of, of living because you've essentially oh, become a, a kind of chat GPT clone fulfilling requests as and when they come in with yeah. no decision about what avenue is best, what you want to do, what you don't want to do, what's aligned with your values and so on. Yeah, you're uh, reacting to the world around you. That's, yeah, that's, it's, that's right. t- it's totally passive, isn't it? So I, I'm, I'm wondering you know, if, like, say, a, a first-time leader were to come to you and, and what advice would you give them to prepare themselves and their teams for this kind of situation? Like, is it a, a, a mindset or are there any other things that they can do to prepare themselves for this, this decision, which will come at some point? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a really good question. I think mindset is a part of it. Um, so, you know, getting comfortable disappointing people, you mm-hmm. have to do it. Like I would, I would almost, if I were to hire a leader to do this, I would almost want to see explicit evidence somewhere in the interview that they're comfortable disappointing me. Like, I'd almost want to like make a request so unreasonable that if they didn't push back and disappoint me, I'd, I'd question whether or not they were fit for the job. Right. So like there, there is an element of just not just mindset, but actually executing those, those hard mm-hmm. no's and especially in the face of power, right? Your boss, a partner, yeah. someone that has some authority over you. Being able to kind of set those boundaries, I think, is huge. Uh, it is mindset, but it's also just a practice. Uh, that's that's number one. Number two, the, I mentioned hiring when I was telling the story, and the first thing I should have got on when I when I had that instinct, when I looked around and said, "Oh, four hundred million bi- million dollar business, three people," I should have immediately gotten on the phone and started calling people to build yeah. the team. Like that should have been just day one. Yeah. Instead, it, it was like a day 90, a day 180 thing. And by then it was like Too late. somewhat out of control. Things were out yeah. of hand and, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't steering the ship the way I wanted to steer it. So get ahead of hiring, um, mm-hmm. bring in people you trust, over-invest on it. Um, that pays off massively because once you get behind the ball on hiring, it's, it's really hard to get out ahead of it um, <laughs> if, you, if you get too far behind. So... That would be one major piece of advice as well. I mean, the other, the other thing I spent a ton of time on I thought was really effective was listing out everything that I could be spending my time on. I was exhaustive. I wrote it all down. And it was, I remember it was like a 10-page document with like, maybe it was 100 rows, but it was exhaustive. And I went to my boss and I was like, look, here's all the stuff I could do. It's all there. Mm-hmm. There's a row for everything. Here were like the... 10 things I'm going to do flat out. Like if it's not yeah. if it's like starting a number 11 down to a hundred, I'm either ignoring it or I'm like looking at it when I have discretionary yeah. time, which, which my, which by the way, maybe never. So if you're uncomfortable with this, like let's have the chat, let's debate it. Let's figure it out. And there were good debates that came out of that. But after we figured out what were the 10 things, that was it. Like I could spend my time driving those things was- forward. And not worrying about the question from my boss about item 84 or item 63 or whatever. Because yeah. that, that's one of the things that got me in trouble earlier in my career is I, 
I would do all the calculus and the prioritization. I just wouldn't mm-hmm. communicate it as explicitly as I needed to. And then people would expect something of me on those things that I actually had no intent to do. So there was always like a disconnect and a way to get pulled back into that. Yeah, people, and it may have even led to that moment when you were talking to a partner and then they said they were disappointed. Exactly. The, yeah. the sure thing would have been at the beginning saying that we, we can't handle this. Exactly. We'd love to, but yeah. Yeah, that disappointment and, message I got, that was actually on me because I somehow that partner had an expectation I was going to do this thing. Yeah. And I should have reset that at some point. I failed to do it. So I totally deserved that message. Um, but it's it's that practice of prioritizing and making explicit that that gets you there. Yeah. Uh, really uh, fascinating, man. Um, I just want to like move on because I've loved reading about your insights from the poker table, which I know is a, is a really big part of your life as well. Yeah. And um, there's some wonderful articles that I'll be sure to link to in, in show notes for everyone. But for those who maybe haven't read them yet, hmm. are there maybe one or two general approaches or techniques that you'd like to share from the poker table that you think could be really helpful for other tech leaders? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good question. Um, I'm connecting to tech leaders because I, I don't typically write for tech leaders. I'm writing for more of a broad audience. Okay, for let, let, let me run with it. Yeah, no, let me a, let me run with tech leaders. Leader. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna run with tech leaders because I I actually think there's a lot of like the risk dynamic in poker is shared mm-hmm. amongst building a tech company. So I think yeah. that it's a principle I could I could key into. Look, here are a couple things that come to mind. So at the poker table, um, you sit down, you have a strategy you go, right? And you, you try to execute it the best you can. One thing I think is unique about poker that I've not experienced and actually I experienced this as a founder. So I'll connect some dots here, um, kind of founding companies and, and poker. But you, at a poker table, you show up, you do great work, you work 10 hours, you can go home with less money. Like that happens all the time. Yeah. It happens all the time. Like you actually played thoughtfully, you had the best hand, you went all in, somebody called you, and then the last card changed the outcome. You know, that, that $1,000 hand didn't go to you, it went the other way, right? So instead mm-hmm. of winning 1000 you lost 1000 Oh, man. That's a $2,000 swing, right? You did and everything right. You did everything right. So you just, I mean, you look at it objectively, you're like, look, they have nothing to regret here. It just, I lost, right? And that, that can happen for two days in a row, three days in a row, a week in a row, a month. Like, I've, I've had some, some stretches where I was like, this is just, unbelievable how you know things aren't going my way but it's that's just variance and it's mass and it's it's totally explainable when you look at bell curves and how things can shake out um but it's it's one thing to know about variance in concept mm-hmm. it's a totally different thing to experience variance this early mm-hmm. with your own money on the line having your bank account depleting every time you, you show up to play like there's an emotional toll that that comes with that I actually think it's super like founding a company, right? Mm-hmm. When, I th- when I think about the company I was founding, there were days where we'd come to work and our conversion rates were off the charts. Like if that conversion rate held for the next six months, we'd be selling our company for millions of dollars and we'd, we'd have a huge success. And then the next day, the conversion rate was zero. Like literally everyone that came to the site thought it was crap. Nobody bought anything. Mm-hmm. They left. And the emotional swings and feeling of founding a company was almost identical to poker, just because mm-hmm. there's so much variance, there's so much variability. And the thing you need to do 
to succeed in that environment is to just manage your own emotions, right? You have to say, um, you know, this is not me. This is luck. And you have to detach yourself from the outcome. And I, I wrote an article about this and I, I think I yeah. call this something to the effect of like, focus on the process, not the outcome, yeah. something to that effect. So detach yourself from the outcome. You got to put in your work. You got to have a thoughtful process. The outcome has something to do with you, but it has a lot to do with luck, especially on, on a short term. If you just commit to your process, know that it's working, know that it's thoughtful, but don't worry so much about the short term stuff mm -hmm. because it, it can be really distracting and demotivating. So I think the mental strength, I think, would be the big thing that I took. From yeah, I, I deployed a tech founders, you know, other it, company. And I think it, it, it ties back to what we've spoken about as well, that discipline you have to follow. Like you've got this list of 100 things that you could be doing. And, you know, let's say you pick 10. It's actually the 11th thing, which is the hardest not to do. And someone comes to you and they really need your help, but you can't help them. And you risk everything else if you follow them. You've got to man manage your emotions, be disciplined, push through your original strategy, or mm -hmm. risk upsetting everything that you've planned and strategized and, and thought yeah. up before. Yeah, that happens all the time at the poker table. Yeah. And it's all the time. You're facing a big bet and everything, all the evidence says this guy is bluffing. Mm -hmm. The line doesn't make sense. The, padding, the betting pattern doesn't make sense. Maybe he's yeah, visibly shaking. There's something going on there. Yeah. Logic says call, but your hand is weak. Objectively, your hand is weak. It's not that good. It mm -hmm. can't beat that many hands, but all the signal there is your opponent's bluffing. And that's where you got to push through and say, okay, look, I have to call. Yeah. Holding is costing me money long-term. Mm -hmm. All the evidence says I should call. It doesn't feel good. It's scary. It's risky, but it's the right move. Yeah. And, you, and, and that's, that's where you connect intent and execution yeah. and just getting reps at that is, I think, really important because you, you don't, you don't get that many reps in tech. That's it's one of the things I found, like I, I, I face big decisions in tech in like my current job, I don't know, mm -hmm. once in three months, something like that. Mm -hmm. At the poker table, I face big decisions like every couple of hours for yeah. thousands of dollars. I have to make them. Like I can't, I can't go away and think. I have to spend the 30 seconds or a minute and decide. If I don't decide, the dealer takes my hand and I lose, right? So like, there's a little bit of pressure and practice that comes with, with the game of poker. Yeah, and, and that's why I think why it's so great to, to talk to like an experienced person like you who's had the reps at the poker table in the corporate world as well, and how we can take those kind of principles and, and apply that rigorously to ourselves so we can all grow as leaders with the kind of challenges that we face along that, that journey. Um, I mean, apart from your articles, which I'll be sure to link to, are there any other maybe uh, resources, tools, books that you think people should be sure to check out? Oh man, for on, on poker, there's so much literature. I've, I've probably written, and, and I've probably read over 50 books. Like, I, look, I, if I were to give you one, which I, I really enjoyed and got a lot of value out of personally, it, it's a book called Sinking in Bets by mm -hmm. Annie Duke. Yeah, um, she's a a professional, I think, a former professional player, also a professor, I think, in psychology. Um, I happened to meet her in 2004 in Aruba, and she was super gracious and took a picture with me and maybe i'll post it on linkedin later um, oh, definitely yeah her, her book is fantastic because what, what she does is she breaks down all the lessons she she learned in poker but puts them into frameworks like things you can really put your 
hands around and say, oh, okay, this is a framework I can use for marketing mm -hmm. or, or business or launching a company. And it's, it's, it centers around how you make decisions and how you think about decisions that come with a lot of risk. Right. Mm -hmm. And like her, her opening line, I'll never forget. She, like her opening line is something to the effect of life is poker, life isn't chess. And what she's trying to say is, look, in chess, when you make a move, it is, it is what it is. You've made that move and like everything's deterministic or around the board, right? There's yeah. no, the, the knight doesn't randomly move from the white square to the black square on mm -hmm. the flip of a coin. Like you see the no. world for what it is, you move and like, if you failed, it's on you. Like you can't blame luck. You can't blame any external circumstances. Mm -hmm. Life isn't like that. You can make a decision and it can be totally sound and things can go the opposite way quickly. Yeah. And the books around, how do you unpack that? How do you, how do you make good decisions and not get distracted by the bad outcomes? So that was, was the outcome decision driven or luck driven? And how do you think about that? And how do you put frameworks around it? So it, it's, it's a really excellent read for anybody kind of interested on the topic. Uh, yeah, I've, uh, Annie Duke is, uh, she's a bit of a legend actually. And it also makes me think of a, a kind of principle of mine or maybe an irritation is a better word. It's the people who for things they perhaps didn't do amazing work, but somehow timing worked and it did go really well. Mm -hmm. But they forget humility that chance plays a big part in how well something might go or not. And maybe we do something bad, but that leads to something else, which is even better. But to always respect the role that timing stuff before, beyond your control. Uh, That's right. Play. I love that. I love that. I mean, I can point to moments in my career where I objectively made a bad decision and it worked out in my favor. Yeah. I could just point, I can look at them. And I mean, it's easy in retrospect. In the moment, it's harder. Um, but yeah, you have to be humble and say, look, like I've been successful, but it's not 100% because of everything I did and yeah. achieved, it's right place, right time counts for a lot. And uh, yeah, having that humility, I think is, is really important. I'm glad you said that. Brilliant. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm glad we're on a wavelength there, man. Uh, but I've loved uh, talking about this humility and I, I really love the way you thought about uh, principle, strategy, and go and how we need to be able to push that through rigorously. And that may mean disappointing people at some moments, but it's all in service of the bigger game, which is growing our company, serving our team, being a better person at the end. So I'm thinking back on our conversation and the story you told, and I'm wondering if you, if you had to transform this into a business book, what would you name it? What would the title be? Oh, I'm so bad with naming and branding. Oh man, that, you're, you're getting my Achilles heel here, but all right, I'm going to take a shot. I'm going to take a shot. Um, so, and the idea just to play it back is this idea of how do you, like, how do you lead through growth and through change and kind yeah. of be, be disciplined with, and know how to disappoint. When you've yeah. got the spiraling to-do list, uh, people getting frustrated with you, you're getting frustrated. How do we approach with, with that rigor and that strategy? I mean, what, what comes to my head is something along the lines of disappoint others like question mark or something like that or disappoint That's yourself. That's a great TED talk. Yeah. I was like, what? He wants to Dis disappoint, disappoint others, question mark, or disappoint yourself. Because like, I, I really think there's a dichotomy, yes. right? Because if, if you don't disappoint somebody else, you're going to end up spreading yourself too thin. Mm -hmm. You're going to look at your work and you're going to be totally bummed at what you accomplished. 
So yeah. you have to take a stand. You have to believe in something. And I, I do think it's binary. Like you either yeah. decide to believe in something and pursue it with everything you have, which involves disappointing others. That's your goal. Or your goal is to not displease anybody. And, yeah. you, and you live your life reacting to everything that comes your way. And look, it's comfortable. People like you. Maybe. I don't know. But you don't get anything done. So I, I, something like the title, we want to hit on like that dichotomy. No, I like that. Sure. I like that. Yeah. Disappoint others or disappoint yourself. Available in all good bookstores <laughs> soon. And lastly, just to close off today's, uh, today's session, uh, where can people go to find out more about your work and your writing? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn. I write almost every day. And I've been writing a little bit like longer form articles on Medium. So you, you can find me in both places. Yeah. And I can say as someone who's read both of them religiously, I've really enjoyed it, got a lot of value out of it. And I think our listeners are as well. So with that, I'd like to say thank you so much for a wide ranging and nevertheless, insightful and focused conversation. Thank you, Carlos. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rob. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Leadership for Unicorns podcast. Before you head off, I've got a small request to make. If you know another tech leader who would appreciate some of the ideas from this episode, please just click share and send it over to them. Also be sure to hit subscribe and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help. Until next time, I've been your host, Rob D. Willis. Thank you and goodbye.